0: friends, Elisa Childers here. Many people, even many Christians, struggle with the question of how a good God could allow so much evil and suffering in the world. Some have abandoned their faith altogether because of this difficult question. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Medine Keener about the amazing story of what she endured living as a war refugee for 18 months in her home country of the Congo, and how she ultimately was able to trust God in the midst of great suffering. I'm so excited for you to meet my guest today, Medin Keener, is married to New Testament scholar Craig Keener, and the story of how they met and ended up getting married is told in their book, Impossible Love, The True Story of an African Civil War, Miracles, and Hope Against All Odds. And this book, I just have to say, this book impacted me very deeply. I was touched and just inspired to be closer to God, to just love Him with all I am and give Him All that I am. So the second I finished reading it, I had to email Medin and ask her to come on the podcast to share a bit of her story. Now, their love story is definitely not typical. Uh, She is originally from the Republic of Congo, and Craig is American. Uh, I don't want to give too much of their story away just yet, but Medin spent 18 months as a war refugee after civil war broke out in her home country. And this war had to do with tribalism and ethnocentrism. And so one of the things that Craig and Medin are passionate about is working together to promote racial reconciliation in Africa and in the U.S. and elsewhere. So she has a Ph.D. in African-American history. So before all this happened, she earned her Ph.D. from Paris University, and she currently works in the Office of Community Formation at Asbury Theological Seminary. So Medin, thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: My pleasure.
0: Let's just start. Tell us about your family and growing up in the Republic of Congo. Were you raised in a Christian home?
1: Yes, I was. Actually, I had wonderful and fond memories of growing up in a God-loving and people-loving home. My father was a deacon in the church, and my mother was a deaconess. And so our home was always open. There were people coming in and out uh, who would just join us for lunch or for dinner, and there were prayers and miracles. Um, I remember being very sick with malaria. I could not breathe. I could not—I mean, the the fever and the migraine and everything was just very strong. And I was maybe— eight or nine, and that impacted me because that day when my dad came from work, he saw me uh, lying on my bed and really uh, mourning, not feeling well. He said, Medim, come to my room. So I went, and he said, okay. He came at level, eye level, so he can talk to me. He said, I'm going to pray for you. Mm. I said, okay. And so he prayed. He usually had very small prayers. He was like, Lord Jesus, heal my daughter, Medim, in your name, amen, amen. And I said, amen, nothing happened. And he said, okay, now I want you to go and uh, take a bucket bath. Now, usually the bucket bath is the water that's been sitting there overnight. And in our standard, back in Congo, that was very cold. The thought of thinking I'm going to put my hands in that water, it gave me chills. I was like, and he looked at me and said, do you trust me? Of course I did. He was my hero. I was like, yes, of course. He said, then just go. So I went fever, uh, headache and all, I went into the bathroom and the as soon as I put my hands in the water, the fever left, the 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 migraine left. I was healed. It was the best bucket path for me. So,
0: yeah, it was a place where I grew up. <laughs> wow. So, was that unusual? Were there a lot of Christians where you grew up or was that was that kind of unusual that, that there was a Christian family there?
1: Um the, my, I didn't grow up in one place. My father worked in a railroad company, so we moved from one place to another. We lived in places where, uh, how would I say, the church was not strong enough, and then we lived in places where the church was very vibrant. But we usually were not the only Christian family. There were other Christians around who will surround mm-hmm. us too.
0: Yeah. Well, your dad plays a big role in your story of, um, yeah. of when you were a refugee, and so we're going to get into that uh, in a bit. But uh, interesting that you mentioned being healed of malaria when you were a little yeah. girl, and I, uh, you know, in God's sovereignty, I'm sure it's no, it's no chance that uh, you ended up marrying the, the scholar who wrote the seminal work on <laughs> miracles. Yeah, that, that's God's That's humor. pretty cool. <laughs> Yes, it is. That's very cool. So part of your story is that when you and Craig met, you corresponded for over a decade before really anything happened. So why don't you start with how How on earth did a girl from Congo meet uh, a guy from America and <laughs> and get this love story going? That's very funny. Now,
1: I have to say first that when I was in Congo,
0: I used to read what
1: they call romance novels. And so there were pictures and I would look at those pictures and say, wow, God, if you can create a Congolese man with blue eyes, that would be fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my dream husband, like, you know, an African man, black and blue eyes. But it didn't happen. I came to Duke and I met Craig. And Craig had an impact on me. The first time I met him was at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. There was a meeting and there was this guy who was speaking. I mean, the passion that he had about Jesus was contagious. I was like, wow, I love that. But at the same time, he was very sad and he had blue eyes. Mm. I was like, hmm, that's very good. (laughs) So anyway, Craig and I, (laughs) we connected, we became friends and we corresponded for a long time because craig had some brokenness in his life he was afraid to commit like he didn't know if the person he, he was praying for someone who come alongside him who is really uh, committed to serving the lord and so well our relationship took a long time mm. <laughs> <laughs> and i i remember just Pouring my heart and telling her, you know, I really like you, and so on. That was very courageous from a Congolese woman. But anyway, <laughs> uh, and in that period, <laughs> and um, I went to Congo, and after war, I remember sending that letter. I was like, Craig, I really like you, and I don't know what you think, but you know what? I just bare my heart there. In my mind, I made a decision. I was like, Lord, okay, I've liked this guy, loved this guy for a while. And if he responds that it's not God's will or something like that, that would be the end. I would disappear in Congo, no more contact. But he didn't respond that way. He said, okay, let's take a few days, let's pray, and let's see what the Lord says. And thank God for uh, internet and so on, because he sent me uh, an email. I was just coming out of war. It's been maybe... um, I don't know, eight months. So I was learning about internet. And every time I went into a cyber cafe, there was one cyber cafe I will go to, to, uh, get emails from Craig and the lady will read. Sometimes they will read people's emails, you know, and things like that because it was in French, but they couldn't read mine because it was in English. Uh, and so, Oh, your American brother, he sent you an email. I said, yes, he did. And then, my face just broke out. There was a big smile because he said, yes, I've heard from the Lord. And yes, it's a go. So they were like, you got good news. I said, oh, you won't believe it. Excellent news. Oh, <laughs> anyway, that's great. That's how we reconnected.
0: <laughs> so that was at Duke University where you had come to start your Ph.D. study. Is that, is that right? Uh, where I met Craig. What, that's where you met, was at Duke, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. But then our relationship
1: was very long. I went back to France, did my studies, went to Congo. Yes, and we went into war. Yes, before we reconnected, like we talked about. So this marriage. was a long
0: time. Yeah, this was a, long, a long time. Long. So let's let's talk about when you returned home to Congo after studying and after meeting Craig at Duke. Civil war had broken out, and yes. um, let's start there. I, I really want everyone who's listening to this today to know your story because it, it is just amazing. Uh, just the the harrowing. Experience and just God's presence throughout that time, because I think a lot of people struggle with how can God be good in a world that that is so difficult at times. And yeah. so, you yeah. you experienced a time of really extreme suffering. And so let's let's start with that story. So, you return home. Civil war had broken out. Mm-hmm. And uh, why don't you start with having to flee your home? What what were the events? surrounding when you when you originally had to flee uh, the only home you well not the only home you'd ever known because you'd moved around a bit I guess but um yes. but your home I mean your your place parents, yes um
1: I was living in Dolisi, that's what it was called and uh we knew things were not safe because there were some activities coming there were soldiers coming from other parts like Angola and so on who came and kind of Um, subdued the city. And then one morning, we woke up normal to to go and do our normal activities. I was getting ready to go and um, sell in the market. I was selling different things to survive. Um, My sisters were, were getting ready to go to school. The children were getting ready to go to school. And my mom was ready. She woke up and she was cooking the food I was going to sell. And then we heard gunshot. And then we heard um, heavy. Um, how say that? What's the word? Like rapid fire or bombing? Not or? rapid fire, but like bombing. Yeah. And it was like, it was, it was, a. I don't know how to describe it. We saw soldiers coming. They were wearing black. Uh, the faces were painted and covered. And they were like, leave this area. They're going to be um, fighting here. So we don't want you to be here. And everybody was, it was chaos. Children were crying. People were yelling, trying to find family members because some people have gone to work. Mm. Children have started going to school and we didn't know what to do. My father was paralyzed. Mm. And so we were standing there. We had a car, but my brother who could drive the car was not in town. And so we were just standing, saying goodbye to our neighbors who were leaving, packing a few things that they had. We knew we could not leave with him. We were just all of our, my sisters and then um, one of our brothers. The other two were not there. We didn't know what to pack. But we took some important documents, um, birth certificate, passport, uh, diplomas, whatever we could find, our Bibles, and put them together, a few clothes, thinking that we'll leave this place and maybe in a couple of days come back. And though, so we stayed into the house and we waited. What that did to me, with all the heavy fighting and so on, and that evening we were visited by soldiers from our own uh, side of the country who came and wanting they wanted money, they shot at my father thank God it did not it did not touch him but the emotions were so hard on me that I got sick I had my heart was pounding, I had diarrhea I I was vomiting I didn't I, I, did, I couldn't hold together. Mm. It was just a lot of things all together. Mm. So that was a very traumatic. Experience when it happened.
0: Yeah, because you had the the added challenge of having a father who couldn't walk, and so, yes. so my
1: father had had uh, a heart attack, so he couldn't walk. He was uh, disabled. Yes. Yeah, disabled. That's so, the reason why we didn't live with the others because we didn't know what to do.
0: Right. So, so what happened next? Uh, the, what I I thought that was so interesting how you you prayed, and then how did you get your father out of there?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well. After the visit from the soldiers, they came and wanted money. We knew they will come back, because we didn't give them
0: enough. This we didn't money, have money was all you had to survive on once you fled. Yes, and so, so so that was a big deal.
1: So we prayed. We asked my father. Actually, prayed and he said, "Lord, we need to get out of here, and we want you to send someone who will come, whether from the enemy or from our own side." Someone who will come and get us out of here. And when he said amen that morning, the next morning, somebody knocked at the door. And that was my father's nephew. He didn't like my father. That's another story, but he it was a question of inheritance and so on. And so we were surprised to find him come to help my father. Um, what we learned later was the fact that people said, how can you be here running with your family when your uncle, who... paid for your, uh, uh, how do you call it, the dowry for you Mm. to marry your wife and so on, is in harm's way. So he was convicted and came back, and he told my father, he said, okay, why don't you get into the wheelbarrow? And he said, I will push you out of here. So we got a few things, and we came out. It was a lot of fighting, but as we were going— Everything was getting quiet because with my father's health condition, we didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, I remember when we got to, before we got to the market where there was a big, big fighting scene there, my father, my mom realized, oh, no, we left his medication on the table. And the question was, who will go back? Mm. Uh, She said, oh, I'll go back. Uh, We said, no, you can't go back. You old, and we don't know what will happen. My sister was like, I can go back. I said, no, you had surgery. So I said, I can go back. And my father said, no one will die for me. If the Lord wants me to come back, I will come back. If not, it means my time is there and I will go and be with the Lord. And so we walked and we walked out of the market and it was quiet Mm. until we went up the hill and um, met with other people who were coming out of the city to Go find refuge somewhere.
0: Now, uh, something that's kind of relevant to this story is... Now, was this... At this point, were you pregnant? Oh, at this point... Because you actually, had gotten married. Yes. When I came back from Congo, before
1: I got married to Greg, I have, I have... I met someone. I got married. And then uh, when war came in, 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 in Brazzaville, he abandoned me. And... Uh, while I was at my parents' and stayed there until I gave birth, I learned a lot of things. He had another wife, and it was just uh, a very sad situation. And ended up, we ended up uh, divorcing. So when the war came, the one I'm explaining, when my father and my family, we were getting out of the out of the city, when his nephew came to get us, I had. Um, David was about whew, 12, between 16 months old. So I had a child in my back. Right. Uh, right. When you see people on TV running for their lives, you see someone with something on their head and something on their back. Well, that's how I looked. I had my child on my back. I had my belongings on my head and maybe something else on my hand. That's how I looked. And that's how I, I run uh, yeah. going with him. And I have to say, it was not easy because I mean, hey, he was a toddler he was it's a time where they're curious, they want to know whatever is going on, and he wanted to talk, and it was it was so hard, just praying, trying to cover his mouth, saying, "Don't talk, and you give us away, or something mm-hmm. like that. right, so anyway, <laughs> so you, yes, you flew your home. Where did you go? We went into well the we went from one village to another it's in congo it's like the forest but in the forest you have like stations where you have a village that's been that's been built and people live there so we went from one village to another we slept on abandoned churches abandoned schools abandoned hospitals what we call dispensaire dispensary uh we didn't have any bathroom we didn't have any anything to protect ourselves Except we didn't bring you cannot bring something like a, a blanket or or sheet. I think we had a sheet for my dad, but that's all we just had some small cloths that we could protect ourselves yes
0: so so what did you do for food while while you were all fleeing together interesting we <laughs> we didn't have much to do we
1: didn't have money, everything was. Triple, quadruple in price. It was very expensive. And so, most of the times, we ate once a day. And uh, with, a, with a, the goal in mind of um, sick people first. So, my father will go first, then children, uh, my son, and my nephew and niece, and then those who were not feeling well, and then those who were a little bit stronger. Uh, that's what happened. But sometimes there were some type of set-up markets where we can go and buy food. Um, God also touched a lot of people as we were going from one village to another. Before war came to their place, people would ask us to go to their—here um, you call it a garden. In Congo, it's more a plantation. That's how we call it. It's like a plot of land where they have uh, vegetables growing, and they just gave us— you know the free freedom to say, okay, go and get whatever you want. So we had people like that on our way. Another way that God fed us was just by. Um, I remember moving from one village to another. In I, I had a journal, so in my journal, it was the way for me to kind of help. It, it was a way of trying to find some sense, some meaning in the chaos that was going on, and I would just write down everything that was happening. And actually the book is almost word for word from my journal. And so (laughs) uh, I remember I had wicked villages where people were really mean to us, and I had good villages. Now remember, in that good village, uh, war came into the village and we started to run for our lives. We didn't have food. We didn't have anything to drink. Uh, The only water, uh, the bottle that we had was basically for my dad and for David and for the children. And so we came to a place where, one, we were hungry. And two, my brother, who was pushing my dad on a wheelbarrow, was so thirsty. It had rained the night before. And he said, Medin, I need to drink something. I don't have any strength to go. I think I'm going to collapse. And I was like... We just have a little bit left. That's for, that's for our dad. That's for Papa Jacques. And we didn't see any river or anything. And he said, I have to drink something. And there were a puddle of water there. You can see worms. And he took his hands, put in that dirty water and drank it. That broke me. Mm-hmm. That, that was really hard. But as we continued, we came to a clearing and then a kind of forest, and we were very hungry. And suddenly there was a breeze and fruits started to fall, just uh, wild fruits that we knew. And so God's grace, we were able to have something to eat before we could. I mean, that renewed our strength to continue on um, with our journey, try to find the next village, whatever it was.
0: One of the things that so impacted me when I was reading the book was just kind of the everyday uh, trials and just the the constant not knowing where food was coming from, not knowing who was going to be sick, not knowing where medical help would come from, and uh, just even even details that, that we might not even think about of just the mosquitoes and how bad <laughs> the mosquitoes were. And even when you would find a place to sleep you know you would just you faced the, these mosquitoes and and in many cases some of you got malaria i think you got malaria twice is that right we all
1: got sick we all got malaria and other things um, diarrhea typhoid fever because the we were malnourished we didn't have enough food we didn't know where it was going to come from and the second thing is we were drinking bad water we didn't have good water i mean in the rivers where we will go to get the water, we could see dead animals were thrown in the river. People, dead corpses were thrown in the river. Um, filth. People went to the bathroom in the river. And what do you do when you're thirsty? So we we'll just say, "Lord, bless what we're drinking," and just move whatever aside and drink. Um, so those were really um, difficult times. We were so sick sometimes that we didn't know we didn't have medicine. the The medication was very expensive. Sometimes we would not have it. I always remember the day um, David was sick. I didn't know he was sick. And this is your son, right? He could, huh? That's your son, right? Yes, that's my David's your son. He could talk. I mean, hey, he was maybe two by that time, and he talks, 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 and which is great. But sometimes I was so tired, just because of war and everything going on, that I would turn out of what he was saying. And that's what happened that day. I just turned out and he was talking and talking and saying all sorts of things. And then I realized that his voice has become different. So I focused on him and he was raspy and he was calling me, mom, mom. I jumped from where I was sitting when I touched him. He was getting cold. I was like, Lord, this is not happening. And I knew children who died of malaria or of malnutrition. We didn't have medication. Our medication was anointed oil that was in my dad's bedroom. We we we, we, we came to a place where, you know, he can have a place. We came to his last, the, the last village was his village. And he had built a house that was not finished. So he was in the bedroom. And so we went in, uh, my brother Emmanuel and I, and... We picked up the oil and he knew no one would take the oil unless someone was sick. And he's like, what's going on? We didn't want him to worry because he was already sick. So we said, no, everything is fine. And Emmanuel came and just massages David and all over him. And he said, we need to go somewhere. We didn't have money. Now, the local health clinic, whatever, health hospital, uh, you had to bring money first before they would take care of you. And so we started to think, he's like, Medin, we need, to, we need to take him somewhere. This is like a malaria attack. And if we don't do anything, we don't know what's going to happen. We didn't even need a reminder that the child down there died yet last night or things like that. Everything was just coming in. I was so, I don't know how to say it. I couldn't pray. So we started to run. He said, let's go to my friend. My friend has a clinic somewhere there. Let's go and see. So Emmanuel, what he did was call David. He said, we, we have to make sure he doesn't go to sleep. As I, I, I had David strapped in my back, Emmanuel was calling his name over and over. David, David, I've never been happy that David could talk. <laughs> he never <laughs> stopped responding. He was like, yes, yes. I mean, of course, he was speaking my language. And the only thing I could say was just Jesus. I was just calling the name of Jesus. I could not even express a sentence in prayer to say, please touch my son. And so we got to the clinic. And Emmanuel's friend who was there, he said, you guys are lucky. I haven't received anyone this morning. I was getting ready to go. And this is almost afternoon. And he looked at David. He said, you're doubly lucky. I have only one injection left. And he went ahead. He said, okay, just put him here. He's going to be okay. And he gave David the injection. And after a while, I could hear the child cry his normal cry again. I have never been so happy. Tears of joy and uh anxiety and everything came to my eyes. So yes, we did. We, we got sick a lot and our feet were a mess because everything we did was walk. And we had what you call here flip-flops. So sometimes we had uh, big pieces of iron or uh, threads to kind of hold them together and keep going. Uh, I was One day I was talking to people. They say, what happened to your feet? I say, you would not be happy to see my feet. My feet were all, uh, they were, how do I say that, on my, um, uh, on the back of my my feet, uh, I had all these big wounds, like big cuts, because the skin was very dry, and as you put your foot, it would just crack open. And... There was blood oozing, and when there were ticks, sometimes they would get there. It was just a very difficult—everything ached, everything hurt, everything was hard. But we used the oil. We put the oil and pray, and the Lord—it was just God's miracles, because we didn't have enough medicine to be healed. David had an infection, an ear infection that went on. He had pus coming out of his ear. His ears for all the time we were, the 18 months, as war refugees. I was afraid he will not hear. But when we came out of war, we went to the hospital. They gave him a treatment. He was fine. David had, um, when he was born, I went to the doctor, the pediatrician. He said, your son will need uh, eye medicine all his life because he had a condition. There was always something white coming out. And... During war, well, of course, we didn't have anything. And so we started to pray for his eyes and prayed and prayed. And then after like a couple of weeks, I realized there was nothing on his eyes, nothing Mm. at all. His eyes were clear, and he's never had anything in his eyes since then.
0: (laughs) So God was good. Now, how old is David now? David is 20. No, and and I just think this is so cool. You know, you mentioned that he had uh, an ear infection the whole time, with yes. pus coming out of his ears, and you wondered if he would ever hear again. What did, tell tell the listeners what he does now? <laughs> David is a uh,
1: he's a Asbury student uh, university Asbury semi, u- University student, and he is a um, majoring in worship arts and minoring in music. He loves to sing, and um, yeah.
0: And he leads worship, doesn't he? I think that is so great. Um, So, okay, so talk talk to us about when you were finally able to go back home. What what was that like? What had happened? And um, just walk us through that. Well, when war
1: ended, we realized that we couldn't stay in the village. I mean, the children needed to go to school, I needed to find a job, and... We didn't want to leave my parents in the village. I have to say, when we all ran, I had a passport. My brother Emmanuel had a passport. We could have left and go like many people did, go to Gabon and then you know, ask for refugee status and go um, to any country we could have. But as Emmanuel and I, we talked about it, we realized we cannot. This is the time our family needed us the most. Thank God for PhDs, but (laughs) we were not using it. This was more important to us than going and finding life on our, uh, him going on his own and me and David going. So we stayed. And at the end of war, we decided to come back home. Now, our home was the house my father has built. It was all his... His meager savings and everything, that was his home. And his friends were there. His church was there. And so he was anxious to come. People have told us that our house was bombed and destroyed. Actually, the person who brought the news came with, um, how do you say that, A a folder. In the folder, a plastic folder. Inside that folder were all of Emmanuel's diplomas. His were the only papers, because he was not there. When we ran away, we didn't know where his his things were. And that young man said, I have experienced something. I cannot explain it. So we were like, what? He gave us the papers and he said, So I got to your house. Of course, we didn't want Papa Jacques to hear this story because the house was uh, destroyed. He said, I got to your house and everything was outside. You know, the dishes, the papers, the books burnt by fire. And he said, I was so angry, just walking around and uh, pushing uh, against the dishes and everything. And then... As he was just putting his feet everywhere, he saw something gleam like in the in the sun. He's like, "What is that? Everything is burned. It's dark." So with his hands, he removed all the ashes and the dark things, and underneath was this plastic folder with Emmanuel's all of his diploma, diplomas, certificate, and important papers. He said, "I cannot grasp. I cannot." Bring my mind to grasp what happened. The plastic would have burned. I mean, everything burned except for the plastic. So we took the time to tell my father the house has been destroyed and so on. And somebody gave us a ride back home. And we've heard a lot of stories and we went there. I remember when I went there, I was I started to cry when I saw the house. And Emmanuel and I, we were thinking, how can we bring him here? This is his life. But we couldn't leave him in the village either. And so we got there. We got out of the car and we all stood there. We were holding our breath, looking at our father. Because one of his friends came and when he found his house completely destroyed, he couldn't take it. He had a heart attack and he died. We didn't want that. So, as we're holding our breath, we're, we're praying for him. And then in the end, he said, Well, let's praise the Lord. <laughs> Ooh, we didn't know we were holding our breath. It's like, <laughs> Let's praise the Lord because we are all here and mm-hmm. we are all alive. These are just things. But we, God protected our lives. Wow. And so we all came together and praised the Lord that. We came home, not the physical home, the house was destroyed and so on, but we came home as a family. We were all together.
0: Wow. What a testimony. That is incredible. So throughout this time, when you're, you're just a refugee going from village to village, trying to stay alive, trying to survive, was there ever a time when... You doubted God's goodness or His love, you know, what would you consider to be your darkest and most difficult time uh, during this whole experience? I'm glad you asked. Yes, I doubted.
1: I cried. I asked why so many times. Why? Why innocent people suffer? Why? All the people I saw in front of me were not even politically minded. We were victims of a civil war, why that person was in power and inflict all these things. And I guess I got my darkest time. I I call it my memory time. Um, We were in what I call the wicked village, and then the soldiers, I mean, the war had almost come into the village, and we needed to run for our lives. And because my father was um, paralyzed, he couldn't walk. The way to go there, Emmanuel and I used to be the people who would go look for food and so on. We traveled together because men were killed, women were raped. And so as a team of a brother and sister, we traveled together praying that God will help us, God will protect us. And if something happens to Emmanuel Maybe I can go and bring the news. If something happens to me, maybe he can go and bring the news. And so we had gone to different villages to get something to eat. So we knew where to go. But as we were getting ready to go, my father couldn't walk. The road was through a railroad, lots of rocks and uh, things on the road. And there was no place to, there was no shade. So we thought that wouldn't be the right thing. And we could not push a wheelbarrow uh, through the railroad. So Emmanuel and then we had our group. We had like 19 people who had joined us. We all ate together. We prayed. Even people who did not know God just came because, well, there was there is comfort in knowing that somewhere there, there is a being, there is a God who cares, even in a time of, you know, dire situation so we had a man who was blind and then we had other groups with us so we had a doctor who uh had a back injury the doctors he was a pediatrician the doctors told him he shouldn't walk for more like more than a kilometer he walked and walked and walked was in a lot of pain so my father emmanuel took my father and the wheelbarrow and they took the main road which was full of soldiers um and we prayed for them because that was the uh, kind of a highway, not really, but the main road. And we took the railroad to go. As we were walking, uh, everyone will ask me, the children were like, are we there yet? All the kids <laughs> and uh, the 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 other parents were coming. So my sister Therese and I, what we will do is we will go walk ahead of them, find a place where we will make David sit and the other kids sit, and then we'll go back. And I will take, let's say, my mom's load, and she will take another older lady's load, and then we can all walk to the place. So I was always ahead. And so we were going to a stretch that was just hot. There was nothing. It was noon. We haven't eaten. We were thirsty. And I started to cry, just saying, Lord, why? Why do we have to go through this? What have we done? What have I done? My life is just like a mess. And I was just, I was having a pity party. I guess I needed it. I cried and cried and I had David in my back. And in the fog of my cries, I heard like somebody was humming or somebody was singing. And it made me angry. I was like, why would someone sing at a time like this? When life is hard, we don't even have a piece of bread to eat. And so as the person kept singing or humming, it drew me back to the present out of the pity party. And I listened, and it was a song we sing at the church. And the person who was singing it was even singing the right words. And I realized that the person was my son, David. 16, 17 months, David, dancing and sweating in the sun and singing. I couldn't believe it. And then I focused on the song. And the song said, we will overcome. We will overcome with God's strength. We will overcome. I cried again, Mm -hmm. even more now because a cries of he is here. He knows. Jesus knows what I'm going through. And so it helped me. I said, okay, Lord, I don't know if we will live or die. But whatever happens, you are with us and you will be with us. It gave me, it gave me comfort. And even now, when I go through hard times, I think about that memory place. I kind of go back and try to grasp the peace and the presence of the Lord. Uh, it doesn't mean that after that, life was okay. No, I had my times of doubt. But that memory place always came back, and the song will come back. It was like the Lord will remind me, I'm with you, daughter. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Whatever happens, I'm with you. You're not alone. So, Wow.
0: Well, and, and I just have to say, you know, there's so much more to this story that— I just really recommend getting the book because in the book, you'll learn Craig's whole side of the story about him praying for Medine every single day while she was a refugee. They lost touch and then reconnected uh, just through Medine finding him as an author of books, right, on the internet. Yes. (laughs) And so they reconnected. And that whole story, I mean, that's the thing that's so great about this book, Medine, is is you have this harrowing story of being a refugee, but at the same time, there's this love story that's undergirding <laughs> the whole thing, and it's like you're, you're, you're. I'm, I'm with you. I'm weeping with you as you're in the jungle and all of this stuff is going on. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm thinking, when are these two crazy kids going to get together? <laughs> it's just the greatest story, and we're we're about out of time. But I want to give you a, a moment to, um, you know. A lot of people struggle, as I mentioned earlier, with with thinking that God is good when there's such extreme suffering in the world. And so, I wanna I wanna close with this question: What what piece of advice would you give to someone who's going through a very difficult time, a time of, of deep suffering? Uh, okay. What would your advice be to them?
1: Um. Thank you. I would like to say, uh, friend, if you are listening, God is good. A lot of things are consequences. war in Congo was not God's doing. It was man doing. And sometimes we go through difficult and hard times. But Jesus said, I am with you every day. And he is with us. He weeps with us. He cries with us. He rejoices with us. And I just want to say there is hope. That God's hand, God's hand is reaching out to you and I pray that you will reach out and take a hold of God's hand and know that he will walk with you every step of the way and he will not abandon you. The peace that he brings is something that we cannot understand in the midst of difficult situations. So please just say yes to Jesus today this morning and let him walk with you comfort you and help you in your time of need
0: the book is called impossible love the true story of an african civil war miracles and hope against all odds my thanks so much for being on the show today and i just pray your story will get into the hands of lots of people because it truly blessed and ministered to me so thank you
1: thank you for the opportunity
0: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes.